So just um, touch into a few questions for a little while. Um, so we have one here, why is it said that one does not reach the deathless without establishing mindfulness of the body? <laughs> well. The mind needs something to to be held by, to refer to, and also to work through particular um, particular levels of experience. It's notable that uh, before the Buddha realized his awakening, and he studied practice for several years under other teachers and the strong general inclination of all these uh, of the samana traditions of that time was a kind of uh, get out of your body attitude which involved generally uh, mortifying the body or reducing its capacities or um, you know asceticism and these teachers taught ways to immaterial states which the the bodhisattva Gautama achieved these states such as the sphere of nothing or no thing and the sphere of neither perception or non-perception these are very refined and I don't really want to talk about them because I don't know them but um, <laughs> experience them but these are immaterial states Immaterial state means there's no experience of any kind of form, they're formless states. And there was a way of the Buddha, Bodhisattva, to get into these states. And then he'd come out of them, and here we are again, you know, planet Earth. Um, so, so, will you just go into these spaces where form doesn't exist, formless peaceful but then you come out mm. so he said well this isn't really doing it is it so then he then he realizes time when he was uh, when he was a little boy sitting under a tree and um, so on and then he began to experience a kind of quality of of subtle pleasure in the body of feeling comfortable and serene and said maybe this is what I should do follow this and then he went to these um, jhanas so <clears throat> the jhanas are the absorptions which come through fully experiencing form the dissolving of form or 
the attenuation of form or the subtle penetration of form, bodily form. So something about experiencing and working through the physical form and the sensory form to see how that, when it's handled carefully, opens into peaceful experiences and, and sublime experiences that means there's an integration so you don't side part bypass the body now the buddha doesn't really explain why he just this is what i did um, but he and then he also says well you know once you have these once you've these four jhanas which are based upon the body then you can direct your mind into these four into these immaterial states these immaterial states are sometimes called arupa jhana but they're not really jhanas they're arupa attainments or arupa realization formless realizations these are sphere of um, um, infinite space infinite consciousness no thing and neither perception or non-perception and he said if you want to attach to anything these are the best places to attach to so you can see there's a kind of there's a footnote there isn't there <laughs> saying well you know these are not these are not liberations but they're highly attenuated states when you can feel the liberated because you're not getting any any um contact from the sense sense bases but then a certain time that passes and you come back to this you haven't really um, understood or penetrated the experience of form and sensuality and sense contact as it happens to us so something hasn't been completed something hasn't been understood something hasn't been fully finished or resolved which is this experience we have of being incarnate. <clears throat> so this runs right through the teachings. It's never exactly explained, but it's portrayed. So there are cases where the Buddha, and sometimes they're rather fabulous or, um, you know, to our mind, rather mythic um, language where the somebody travels to some of these formless realms and there's these deities up there or these kind of blissful, formless deities out there for like a billion years or something in this kind of formless state and feeling they're really where it's at and they're not. You know, there's the one where the Buddha, uh, Bhikkhu travels up to this uh, sublime Brahma realm. So those formless realms are often equated with Brahma Loka, which is sort of if you look at it cosmologically, it's kind of sublime deities. When he travels up to this, uh, through his meditation, he goes into this state and he travels up to this formless level. And he, he says, this question in his mind, where do the four elements cease? Earth, air, fire, and water cease. Where, do the, where does the realm of form cease? I don't know why he has that question, but he has. And the Brahma deity says, well, I am the supreme Brahma deity, the knower of all. There is none greater than I. So he asks the question, and the deity just says, well, I'm the supreme Brahma deity. There's none 
greater than I, and all the Brahma deity has his retinue of other Brahmas hanging round. So the bhikkhu asks this question three times, and the deity says, look, don't keep asking me that question, because I don't know. But I don't want to look like an idiot in front of my retinue. So, <laughs> uh, of course, it's slightly very comic. He says, you're asking the wrong person. You have to ask the Buddha that. I don't know. So the bhikkhu goes and asks the Buddha, and the Buddha says, well, you asked the wrong question. You shouldn't ask where they cease. You ask where they don't arise, where name and form are broken up. Um, this is where earth, air, fire and water find no footing in this uh, non-manifestative consciousness. So you're going, you know, in a non-manifestative and anudasanang, trackless consciousness. Mm. This is where earth, air, fire and water do not arise. And this is kind of where, you know, you go, well, what's that? Well, clearly it's not in the formless realms. And clearly it's about this particular relationship with the form. So he doesn't say, and essentially it's name, you know, so that the form is form. So there definitely is such a thing, exterior manifestation of form, but it's the naming of form. Naming means perception, feeling, contact, intention and attention. So there we are, what lo and behold, Contact, intention, attention, sankara, perception, and feeling, which we've been, which I've been talking about for a long time. So we're back in the, oh, sankaras again. <laughs> which you will probably have heard enough right now. So there's something about that that potential for. And it's called nama, naming. Something make contacts form and derives perception. And if that hasn't really been understood and realised, then we, if you like, we suspend the process. You could suspend it. You go, you side bypass it, and you go into a very subtle form uh, or formless state, in which these. Then all the tendencies in the sankharas are not understood. Now, so they're just suspended, and then after a while, considerable while it seems, you know, that the Brahma deity kind of actually his little twinkle goes out, and they descend, and they come down to earth. You know, you've, you've used up that karma. Uh, the skillful karma has been used up. This is in this way of looking at things because something's not been understood the the birth tendency the rebirth tendency has not been understood and this is the purpose of insight which means you know that you calm things to really look into form the relationship with form subtle form physical form sense contact and all that comes up with that, in order to see it, understand it, and see through it. Mm. If that isn't done, then the riddle remains, some part remains unresolved. And we sidestep it. And I think this is, to my mind, this is what mindfulness of the body is about. Um, and why these arupa, which you are not 
themselves seen as liberations. In fact, you can develop the, the, what are called the gates to the deathless, are the four Brahma Vihara. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the four Brahma Vihara, and then the four jhanas, and then three of the immaterial attainments. Not the fourth, not the neither perception or non-perception. In other words, there has to be something that you can refer to that's got enough body to it that you can actually look at how it's affecting you. Yeah. Putting it very crudely. You can look at the contact impression. Now if it's so subtle, now neither perception or non-perception is subtle. <laughs> it's even a subtle concept. It's just the tenuous awareness of there being of being aware, there's almost nothing happening. You know? So you can't get a readout on it. It's not, it doesn't sustain an object, a form. If you better read, get a readout on attachment, you know? on inclination towards, inclination away from, on, what it, on these emotional cascades, you know, the sankharas. And that's what we need. We need to see this clearly. We need to realize, you know, this, this web of Nama Rupa. And for that you need Rupa. And Rupa is most obviously and directly experienced as bodily form. So within that is the place for investigation. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Within this, uh, uh, another, again, it's not exactly explained, but it's repeated in very in a lot of time, a lot of forms. The time when the Buddha is talking to a, a devata, who is a, called a skywalker. This devata can, can stride across the earth in one stride. I think that's it. Something like this vast stride. And he says, you never, where do you get to the end of the world? When do you ever get to the end of it? And the Buddha says, you don't get to the end of the world by traveling. You get to the end of the world within this body. With its consciousness, perceptions and feelings is the arising of the world, the passing of the world and the way leading to the passing of the world. Again, it really emphasizes body. There are many phrases that are used. One touches the deathless with one's body. Which is, again, you know, what does that mean? Well... Who knows, you know, exactly, you know, but there's a, certainly a message there, isn't it? One touches the deathless with one's body. Or in this very body, um, the kaya so the seven kinds of disciples, um, and one is called the body witness. So these are, these are like these, two of these are arahants. Seven kinds of disciple means the so one is on the path, the stream entry, the stream entrer, and so forth. And this is in the Kitagiri Sutta, which you can look up. He talks about the seven kinds of disciples, the people who are really following what he's saying. And one of them is called the, the body witness. And it says, in his, his own body, he realizes, um, you know, these, these sublime liberations. Again, you know, Something about 
this uh, um, and that's my interpretation of, of why it's there um, because of the need to to understand contact touching um, form what it does to it what it what it generates um, and if you can look at it even more, <coughs> you know, change the lens a little, but where else but in the body are, is our fear mechanism, our rage mechanism, our sexual reactivity? Where does that happen? You know, something that jumps up before your mind can even really get it. Those reactions, can involuntary. Now, aren't they something that we have to kind of penetrate and understand? Um, you don't do that by going into some formless state. So they have to be the involuntary reactions. I think also have to be um, seen, noticed, understood, realized, released, um, and that we do through through the body. Um, you know. So if you look in the four satipatthana, you have the four establishes a mindfulness but I would like to think of like Russian dolls you know they're one inside the other and mindfulness of the body is the the basic doll and the other ones sit inside it as you're cultivating mindfulness of the body you contemplate feeling as you're cultivating it you've got something to be able to ground your mind in ground that tremendous mind that can spin out to the other side of the universe and the future and the past that has no real location and if it doesn't have a loc- uh, its own location it will tend to locate itself on terms of feelings, mental perceptions, uh, fears, uh, proliferations, fantasies it just keeps riding on something or the other till you ground it in the body and when you ground it in the body, it begins to lose its uh, its uh, recklessness and its agitation and get settled. And then the the mind being settled by the body, you know, transforms from being something that's agitated and so so um, vulnerable to so affected, so wild, so trembly into something that becomes a deep resource for happiness and pleasure and it starts to bond into that and that's where you get the strength and the groundedness and also you know our energies transform into you know compassion and and uh, you know deep deep sympathy for the human condition and the compounded universe so it seems this is certainly what the Buddha was gathering under his enlightenment umbrella something for the welfare of gods and humans and the world nature, everything and where we all meet is in this incarnate form that's what we have to meet it's other creatures, the planet, our own bodies all that, um, meet that and, and find peace and harmony with that. Mm.
say a few words about dealing with or being inclusive of mental states while walking. Well, that's again um, walking. So staying embodied as we walk. Um, uh, when you do walking meditation, again, the Buddha doesn't give a lot of detailed instruction on walking meditation, but he does recommend it as something that that uh, builds up a certain vigor, you know, yeah, certain vigor to it. You're walking up and down, so as you build up stamina this way, and walking meditation is to dispel that which needs to be dispelled. There's no technique in it, in you know, in the, what the Buddha lays down. Now you can, like with all these things, the Buddha lays down a basic blueprint, and then you can, you know, generate some technique that will support that. But um, to dispel what needs to be dispelled, to generate stamina and ongoing energy. So, using the experience of, of both the walking has certain experiences in it. One is the whole body moving along. You know, so moving through space, you know, staying there. So, and the very movement of the body, if you stay with it, has got a certain calming effect, the rhythm of it. And the specific contact, the foot touching the ground again is a kind of, almost like a mantra saying, here we are, here, here, just here, just here, just here. So it uh, disrupts the mind's tendency to blur into its own um, narratives and, and uh, gossip. And you go, and then just, just here, 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 here. Now, as I say, the mind doesn't have a location. Well, it locates itself on mental states. So being, using the walking to keep pulling the mind back onto the physical contact and, and out of its preoccupations is a, is a useful way to, to break up the mind's preoccupation, mental preoccupation. And using the regularity and the, uh, the flowingness of the form, you have a pretty good way of noting when your mind begins to, to spin off because what will happen is your walking becomes automatic. It's just walking up and down thinking. You're going to automatic. You're not really there, and your body's just oh, I'm walking along, and you go a little faster, and you don't feel the fullness of your body. You can feel something's walking, but basically, it's just like you're riding in your car. There's things rolling along underneath, and you can just keep the chit chat going in your head. And so, when that happens, you you can feel the difference. Because it's no longer the body walking, it's me walking. 
<coughs> and what tends to happen is it goes a bit faster, the immediacy of the contact, the accuracy is lost, becomes slightly blurred, you know, you don't really feel what's happening in your feet. And um, some of your eyes will tend to become activated. Uh, so the instruction that I often add to walking meditation is to make sure your eyes are just open, but slightly downcast, not deeply downcast, but slightly downcast, like you've got them on dim instead of main beam. Hmm and keep the muscles around the eyes soft and even the lens itself you know of the eye keep it unwavering and open so just as if we've got a view from the mountain top so it's a very open focus rather than the scrutiny focus when we're reading a book when the lens of the eyes that that diaphragm is is contracted to pinpoint. Said, keep the lens of the eye quite wide. Zoom, you know, as if you're looking at the horizon. Uh, you don't have to look at the horizon, but you just keep your eyes like that. And that will certainly, my experience is that will tend to uh, make it. It's not. It's not a ground for thought. Thoughts will occur when your eyes contract so if you keep your eyes more in that more open soft state thoughts don't crystallize in such a clear way you get kind of feelings and moods coming up but they don't grab hold and then as you're walking along you can feel the calming and steadying and grounding effect of the body helps to um kind of stop the the moods building up. So uh, in this way, when you sustain walking meditation for an hour or so, it really does help to create some open ground. You know, a lot of the mists and the, um, of the mind have been lifted, blown away. Also, we use walking and why not just go for a walk well, going for a walk is fine also, but using a walking track is really helpful. Say 20, 25 paces, depending on what feels comfortable for you. So it is, it is described as walking up and down rather than just going for a walk. Um, not going for a walk is fine also, but walking up and down. So you, because then you get the sense of stop, stop pause, you know, relax everything, just come into standing for a few breaths, five breaths, 20 seconds, a minute, half an hour, whatever, you understand, and then turn and walking again. So that, that's your, if you like, that's like each walking is like an in-breath or an out-breath, you use that track to um, build up a sense of uh, perseverance and persistence. And so that, that really, over time, that helps. And with that, you know, like, it's not really not, not having any thoughts. I've 
suggest that these are ways in which we loosen the basis in which thoughts can get stuck, but certainly thought forms and preoccupations will arise. And that's fine because you want to, in a way, let them rise up so that you can walk through them. You can walk through them, feel them, let them speak and keep walking through them. And, oh yeah, that one's, let that one steam off, you know. <laughs> and then you stop, turn around, another come up, let this let that one steam off. So you're kind of gently steaming off some of the hot stuff in the pot. You can also go into other things such as bringing your attention to the structures of the body, the bones, feeling the bones, imagining, visualizing the body as a skeleton or the bones walking backwards and forwards or elements. And so you can do lots of things with it. Um, depending on uh, how you want to use that. But uh, over a period of time, um, the uh, what can be experienced is something like walking but with nobody in it. It's just walking. The feeling of the mind's gone quiet, so there's nobody walking, but it's just walking. And that's a lovely... Um, empty open state and because we're walking in very much with your eyes open you're walking through an environment it, it helps also to just check the tendency to get very introverted when we sit you know we close down we sometimes we just sink you know <laughs> into our stuff uh, and not always in such a good way you know and so just keeping the openness uh, help to stop the tendency to get too embedded in one's uh, mental stuff. These are the advantages of walking meditation. And when you walk when you're angry, you can feel the anger as energy in your body. When you walk when you're feeling fed up, you walk feeling fed up. When you walk feeling spaced out, you walk feeling spaced out. When you walk feeling, you just feel what you're feeling, but keep walking. And the body will, by itself, if you keep referring to the body, the body will gradually level and open and resolve those energies. Hmm. <clears throat> I've never been able to connect with metta meditation. Repeating the phrases feels silly and ineffective. I usually just try to settle my mind and just soften around difficulty. Something, a person or situation, I guess it's towards difficulty with a person or a situation or with me. That, open, that opens my heart. Should I try harder to do metta? To do metta? Yeah. Well, <laughs> once you light the candle in the right way, um, metta is a love, enjoyable experience. Um, but I think it starts with just experiencing how how lovely and natural it is to 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 feel that. Mm. 
and maybe first of all beginning with what it's like, how you really touch into the quality of it, what it's like. so how do you know that, how do you know what it is? And maybe how does he know when someone has been kind to you, how did that feel? And small acts of generosity, kindness, courtesy, sharing, consideration, somebody's there for you, somebody's compassionate towards you, somebody listens to you, how does that feel? It happens, doesn't it? Quite a lot, I imagine. Hmm? How does it feel? You're taking in the feeling and lingering in it till you, you feel something, your heart opens. Because that's, that's what's needed. Before you can really do it, your heart has to open. And it opens under the effect of feeling experience of goodwill. Yeah. Goodwill is something humans are producing a lot of the time. Um, sometimes we don't hear it because, you know, it's it, it, it behind their words, behind their gestures, behind their movements. There is a sense of respect for you and uh, wanting to make things nice for you or seeing some way of helping you out. But not, it don't always, it's not always explicit, but you begin to note it. Eat today, you know, so just think today, has anybody, you know, and pe- people think didn't have to do it, has somebody kind of helped you in some way or in any way? <laughs> and then in one's life, you realize that, yeah, there's been some rough times, but we've all experienced uh, generosity, love, being cared for, um, being respected, uh, experiencing people's friendship. We've all had that. And so you just bring that up, touch into it, linger in it, take in the meaning of it. That uh, isn't something that you had to earn, something that happens, and how that is. And then when we experience that towards others, we didn't have to. You don't. You didn't pay. You're not paid for love. There's no duty of it. But we experience that. We experience warmth, affection, gratitude, compassion, concern, goodwill. We like to help. That's, that happens. You just linger in it. Linger in that experience. When you linger in it long enough, you get the feeling, of, yeah, and to dwell in it, make much of it, let your body feel it. Imagine you're sitting in a bath of it, relaxing it, and when you get good at it, just start thumping it out in all directions. <laughs> You can do it. <laughs> but it's always done by words. It's mostly because the, the heart doesn't work in words. So the words are there just to remind us. But what may be more helpful is images. Images like we, 
We see people in our mind's eye. We see their faces, or we see people, um, and we, you know, that evoke that wish to nourish is is loving kindness. The wish to protect. You see people in pain or suffering, and something you rises up. Uh, you know, you start with animals. You know, dog. Dogs are great meta gurus. You see a dog, and dog looks at you, and you get a feeling of unconditioned love from the dog. I guess that's why people have dogs because they need to experience this sense of love, uncomplicated love. Whereas other human beings, it's kind of complicated, doesn't it? Psychologically contorted. Dogs are pretty straightforward. So however, whatever perception or image arises, whether it's of a, a fellow human or someone you respect or, or an animal, and there's different qualities of it, the quality of goodwill, which can be gratitude, respect, um, the wish to serve or support, the wish to cherish or nourish, wish to protect from harm and you kind of bring up images of beings that evoke that in you and, uh, and essentially like all these practices you 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 work at it within the, the sense of enjoyment how does this become enjoyable how does this cause you to open and feel your your life is enriched by it that's how I practice with it. <clears throat> you know, I think one piece that is there is when you don't own anything, it gets a lot of it. When you just see things for what they are, you know, the things are beautiful when you see them what they are. When you see something is just itself. When you see it becomes mine or something that should mean something for something that should be something for me, then the quality of free will and free good goodwill becomes distorted. Yeah. So if I if I want something from you, right, well she didn't come up with that, did she? You know, how do I get her to be like this? You know, if I want something, then the quality of, of goodwill is is going to be distorted. Say, you know, because we all find we never quite come up to to the mark in fulfilling each other's desires, do we? <laughs> so as long as you see other people like that, then meta is always going to be somewhat twisted or polluted. It's like, you know, I'll be nice to you provided that, you know, something, some, there's some result. And really a lot of this is just about letting people and things be exactly what they are. When you see them exactly as they are, just as something independent from your wishes, your strategies, your behaviors, your needs, your fears, it's just that. Then it's pretty much becomes pretty natural to see the beauty in everything, yeah. 
And so metta is sometimes, as, as it's developed, it's, it, it's said to lead to the sphere of the beautiful. Everything is beautiful. Because it's just what it is. And beauty is the experience of things being exactly what they are, with no comparisons, with their own uniqueness. And they're beautiful. You look at the trees, there's not su- no, su- no such thing as an ugly tree. I've never seen an ugly tree. And they're all kinds of shapes, aren't they? Falling apart, splintering, covered with moss, mildew, rotting. They all look beautiful. But if I was another tree, I'd probably think, I don't think much of you, you know. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, or why aren't you, why aren't you nice and leafy? like I want you to be, or you're not, put, you know, you're not leafy enough like the rest of us, why aren't you putting on as many leaves as I am? Come up to scratch with you, you know? But because you leave them alone, you just see what they are in themselves, in their own living quality and magnificence and integrity, you know? Gee, that's, that's just so wonderful. Can we see things like that? free from these, all these kind of comparative taints and projections and, you know, you've got to be something for me. Oh, you've got to be something for me. It's going to be miserable, isn't it? Really. But just as you are, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And you see the beautiful, and you the feeling of goodwill just happens by itself, I think. Uh, and it's just that tuning to it. The lo- tuning to the lovable. And when, when you kind of get like this, you, just, you see how, how happy and how fulfilling that is. And how you feel so completed by it. You think, why don't we do this all the time? You know, why why are we so messed up <laughs> that we can't experience this? And then you see, well, it's because of craving, isn't it? I want you to be. I want you to be the way I want you to be. I want you to fit in. I want you to appreciate me. I want you to live up to my expectations. I want you to turn up on time. I want you to be this way or that way. I want you to relate to me in this way and not that way. Uh, yes, God. You know, and then you, you never can do it because you don't know what I want you to be because I haven't told you. <laughs> I don't quite know what I want you to be either, but I just know that you're not what I want you to be. <laughs> You know, we have this kind of feeling of, of some, some myth, you know, the perfect person. <laughs> the perfect person. <laughs> the, uni- the unicorn. <laughs> the unicorn lives with the perfect person. <laughs> and they're very happy together. <laughs> At the end of the rainbow. Uh, with with Meta, everybody's the perfect person. <laughs> so it makes life much easier <laughs> that way. 
And uh, so it goes down from like, you know, really seeing that to just realizing, you know, I find this quite, you know, what this person is doing is really chafing and rubbing up against me and he, you know, what can I do about this? And well, I can stop my heart from being corrupted with ill will. So, you know, the, the Olympic standard, when the Buddha says, well, you know, if you get these sieves, high women catch you at the crossroads and start sawing you apart with a, boat, a, a saw, throwing your limbs off, if your mind moves into ill will, you've missed the point. <laughs> You're not a true disciple. And you think, well, that's, that's, uh, that's the test, isn't it? <laughs> but I don't think this means you're feeling gratitude towards them so much as you're just not letting your mind go into this polluted state. Well, it made you think, oh, these poor fellows, you know, how, how confused and twisted it must be to have a mind like that. He's having, obviously, in a, in a very confused state to want to saw me apart. It's a fable, incidentally. It's not part. It's not a part of general retreat practice, but, <laughs> but it gives you an idea of the, you know the the just to first of all you know the bottom line is to not let your heart go into this sour spin of ill will, and then feeling the oh how beautiful my heart is free at this moment. It's a, at least at this moment my heart is free from ill will. Oh, the freedom. So, you know, <clears throat> any time we get that sense of the, that freedom from fear and ill will, think, oh, beautiful to experience this, even for a few moments like that. And then the, the Buddha said, this is a vehicle for liberation. You should really get it going. Yeah, because within this, you, you begin to dispel those perceptions uh, around personhood that are so gripping and cause so much suffering. Mm. <clears throat> okay. I've heard you teach the mind state of good enough can be skillful. I've also heard you teach to guard against the mind state it doesn't matter. Can you talk about what distinguishes one state from the other? Mm. Well, it's more an approach. Uh, so the approach of good enough is to work against the nagging, uh, craving, idealistic perfectionism. So it means you can only really start where you are and be where you are. And so we can only really understand and establish ourselves, our, our minds adequately where they are. So right now it has to be good enough, which doesn't mean it's perfect. It means it's good enough as a start. You can get your, you can get hold of it. You can come to terms with it. You can meet that experience. You can meet your mind. You can meet your moods. They're not the best, but you can meet them. Now, if you don't have that ability to say, well, it, it's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's something I can bear with. I can meet it then how can you practice with it? So if one is in a state of you've got to be 
calm and quiet and peaceful and nice and so forth before you can you can meditate you know or practice or every time your mind is not peaceful and nice and sweet and kind and so forth this it's something you deny or shut down or get agitated about how are you going to meet these states if you can't meet these states how can you practice with them how can you unfold them how can you unravel them how can you release them if you can't meet them if you're always just going well i'm not good enough yeah i'm not good enough you never you know so you perpetuate um a subtle form of of sidestepping what's happening mm-hmm. state of it doesn't matter i i think is more to do with um well i don't know what context that's in but it's about perhaps ethics and um uh heedlessness <coughs> heedlessness which means we we go into automatic around behavior and uh oh this doesn't really matter you know you, you sort of plea pieces of your day or your behavior you're quite focused on and then have pieces the way the mind will minimal attention uh, this doesn't matter so those so, so those are the places you want to wake up to mm. because whenever the mind either voluntary or involuntarily doesn't want to focus or consider something not worthy of focus this is where the defilements will will cluster see a lot of carelessness uh, um, recklessness um, unexplored stuff so now you're not asking for those experiences to be uh, wonderful so this will you know though it doesn't it so it matters but it doesn't have to be perfect everything matters and yet nothing really matters in terms of self it's not but it matters that we're aware of it that's what matters it doesn't matter whether it's you know bright or dark in certain respects but it matters that you're aware of it doesn't matter if it's silly or confused but it matters that you're aware of it it doesn't matter whether it's you know a bit squalid or jealous or spiteful but it matters that you're aware of it and so you know really instead of looking at practices you know like narrow focus intensive intensive pathways you know we do an hour or two of intensive practice or even six hours of intensive practice look at it more as 24 hours of extensive awareness you know so you know we're lying down that fuzzy state notice it 
any time that you can get a, a reflective capacity over any state at all, do that. Don't don't dismiss any of it. It's all something to to round out the experience of of, of the mind. So, first preset question of bug catcher cups throughout the forest refuge. So, this means I guess that you put the bug in a cup and then you flick it out the window. Given the cold weather, it seems catching the bug and putting it outside is just killing the creature. Is the assumption they don't belong inside? Is it oh, therefore okay to send them to a cold death? <laughs> God. Jeez. <laughs> They're probably inside because, like us, they like the warmth. Indeed. Ethical dilemma or shortage of little bug coats. <laughs> Someone likes to knit coats for bugs and send them out with this. Scarves and gloves on. <laughs> well, <laughs> it could be. <laughs> could be. Yeah. yeah, well, the, um, it's, yeah, you know, it's, the precepts are not, they don't go down to microscopic detail. They're really about, uh, mm, Guidelines on uh, intention. So, if you want to find out how you can kill as many bugs as possible, then that's probably not the right intention. Um, so, you just look at it, you know. I mean, if the bug's not bothering you, leave it where it is. Uh, but it may be the case that if you leave it inside, somebody's going to step on it or it's going to get hurt anyway. Uh, yes, because, you know, that's bug life, really. <laughs> I'm always fishing them out of lavatories and things, and the creatures seem to out of sinks, you know, trying to drag the thing out of a sink, and they're always tipping themselves down it again. And, uh, you know, so the, like you drive a car, you're going to kill bugs. Mm. You're going to go smash against the windshield. So if you're going out there with the bug catchers, the hammer, you can kill. That's the wrong idea. But if you're saying, well, just put it where it won't, it's not going to get in anybody's hair or, or and cause problems, then that's probably a different way of looking at it. But you can also you know, look at these things as perhaps, well, most we coexist with a few critters, you know, unless they're really, um, you know, causing problems. I know in, in uh, certainly in Thailand, you, you have to. They, they just move in on you. They're bees, and the bees like salt, so they just cluster on your body, licking or doing whatever they, they can take the salt off your body. So you walk around with kind of like a
coat of bees over, over, your, over your skin and you don't want to do anything because they'll sting you. So you just have to let them kind of crawl over you, taking, taking salt off your body. And if you get used to it, it's, it's, it feels slightly tickly, but... <laughs> While they move into your kuti, you know, you get a whole army move of critters moves into your kuti. You just have to move out, really, or move the other side. There's, there's too many of them. <clears throat> what are the practical signs of being a stream mentra? I mean, how does one really know? Is it the same for everyone? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those. The Buddha, there's a whole section in the collected discourses, connected discourses called the Sotapati, Sangyutta, the Sotapana. And I think that what happened was the Vinayananda kept asking the Buddha, when somebody died, was he a stream mentor or not? And the Buddha would say, oh, he was. Then he asked, and again, somebody else has died, and Nanda would ask the Buddha. And the Buddha eventually got a bit, look, Ananda, look, stop vexing me with these constant questions. You can check it out for yourself. If someone has uh, unbroken sila and faith, unbroken, unwavering faith in the triple gem, then they're a stream mentor. <laughs> but they don't necessarily know it. Uh, <clears throat> uh, there's, a, there's a case, for example, in the suttas where the merchant Anattapindika, who is a great supporter and practitioner, is on his deathbed, and Venerable Sariputta has, comes round to see him. And reminds him, you know, points out this, that, and the other, because he, he he was worried and anxious about passing away. And the Sariputta reminded him, or touched into, look, there's this, that, this is what's happening for you. Oh yes, and he realised or recollected that. So it's it's not absolutely clear uh, because the uh, opening to the deathless. It has been experienced, but it's not fully integrated. It's not fully firmed up. It's the entry. It's not. It's not the real grounding in it. Unwavering faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha means that when someone's splitting your head apart with an axe. You have unwavering faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. <laughs> you have unwavering. So, what does it mean to have unwavering confidence in the Dhamma? It means, oh well, you know, not something I can learn out of this. Uh, you feel the presence of something open, something, something you can take refuge in, and. Uh, I say this is more than an idea, more than an idea. To have real confidence in Dhamma, you have to have some experience which makes the Dhamma, and it sounds slightly eerie, but there's a real, real presence to it. Presence of something steady, calm, resourceful, that you can 
approach from your mind states and your personal pains and joys and it's there it's like that's what it why it's a refuge it feels like a refuge now when you're in your stuff you may have lost contact with that but the stream interest someone who can oh oh yes oh right um mm, yeah oh of course you know that come back to that so stream interest is not someone who does not uh, uh, break precepts stream interest you know one of the definitions knowing they've broken a precept they oh transgression has overcome me yeah lost it try again they immediately recognize it and are able to they don't cover it up they're able to make amends they're able to acknowledge that so it's not someone who's flawless but someone who has the, the basic standard is firmly established as good appropriate comfortable really feeling fully with that and whenever something they they lose it some reaction occurs they notice and they learn from that and then they return to that basis so it's a very strong sense of um conscience and concern self-respect respect for others um, confidence in in dhamma and uh Sangha, which means really the human capacity for realization in the Buddha, as yeah, this this teaching and awakening is the fullest potential. It's going to bring around the fullest potential, and really sees the, the how essential ethical sensitivity is to all of that, and really feel feels that. There are many attributes, but those are the basic ones. Also uh, 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 endowed with uh, a generous heart, enjoys that experience. Um, Yeah, is a friend to others. These are qualities. And you know, in order to really get that faith in Dhamma, that, that real sense of it, then this is where the meditative uh, realizations are, where we, through, through our focusing and our meditation practice, we begin to experience something that you can't quite name or know, but something that holds us. As where mental stuff comes up, we get agitated and thrown around, and still we feel we come back to something. What's that? You know, the knowing, awareness, presence. You have something you you come back to. You're not lost. Yeah. If you're not lost, then you you're found. <laughs> you're in a stream. You're in something that. Uh, uh, you've got a basis for for working out the uh, these uh, karma formations. Mm. Okay, so that's enough for tonight. Mm. And uh, <coughs> so um, 
Now it's time to do as you see fit. And we have an open day tomorrow, so uh, use that skillfully. Uh, and be well, be happy. <laughs>